0: It's not often that I can uh, predict for you what my favorite day will be. But I can tell you that about every two years, my favorite day is the first Wednesday after the first Monday in November. Why do I say that? Because the first Wednesday after the first Monday in November every two years is the day after the election of any kind. I can't stand political season. I'll just be quite honest with you. I am tired of all the brochures in my mailbox that just get thrown away like they would make a difference. I am tired of having to wait. Now, Usually when my wife and I watch a television program, we DVR it and we fast forward through the commercials. It's the best. But during political season when there's football on, and I'm thinking we ought to move political season to the spring so we get through football, but anyway, that's just me. But when there's football on, I got to sit through all these commercials and everybody attacks everybody and this person's a rat and that person's a crook and ah, uh, I get tired of it. And, you know, I get it. We need leaders. I long for good leaders. I believe you do too. I'm so tired of empty rhetoric. We need leaders who really care about people, not leaders who want to make a name for themselves. You know, I long for a leader who has the balance of character strength and moral convictions and compassion. And I, when I say compassion, I mean real compassion, not photo-op compassion. I long for a leader who's not blinded by power but understands the responsible use for power. I long for a leader who truly has my best interest in mind, not just his or her own ambitions. I long for a leader who knows the difference between compromise and just caving in. Because we live in a chaotic world. We live in a world of uncertainty. You've just heard it. You know, we had it here, they had it in Japan. Starts, stops, fits and starts. Things are, you know, what's going on? We we live in that world. And please don't hear me longing for the good old days. Solomon already said, don't think that the past days were better than these days. They they weren't. In fact, I would submit we've lived in a chaotic world since Genesis chapter 3. In our world today, interest rates are up. The stock market's a roller coaster at best. Ukraine and Russia are headed into the winter of war. North Korea launches more missiles. We hear of shootings every single week in Chicago. And you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the minor prophet Zechariah. Now, if you don't know quite where that is, go to Matthew, right at the very beginning of the Gospels, and then go backwards through Malachi, and you're going to find Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah 9, 10, and 11 today. Zechariah 9, 10, and 11 take place probably in about 487 B.C., Uh, As we've seen already, a group of people had come back to their homeland. They had been in captivity for 70 years, as God had promised. And, And most of them were born in captivity, but we learned as we looked at the book of Haggai that there were a few that had actually remembered Jerusalem in its day, had remembered the temple, and so there were some older folks there as well. They came to try to do a restart, They came to do a restart. They wanted to reestablish Jerusalem. They wanted to reestablish the temple. Somewhere in that time frame, Nehemiah came back to build the walls around Jerusalem. And he actually was the governor for a while. But when we're in Zechariah, I don't think Nehemiah's made it quite yet. And so you you have Joshua and Zerubbabel leading. Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the governor. They were trying to reestablish this nation under hostile conditions. And and as Zechariah's prophecy unfolds, we find as we get to chapter 9 that there was a need to be reminded that no matter how hard it looked, no matter how hard it seemed in the moment, God was on their side. That God had a plan. God had a plan to to reestablish his nation. And God had a plan that went far beyond the current circumstances. God had a plan that went far beyond what they were facing now. God had a bigger plan in mind, a plan for redemption. And so Zechariah is going to speak to the people in chapters 9, 10, and 11 a little bit about leadership. Because Zechariah knows the leaders they need. And and it's going to be really interesting as we look at this bit of this prophecy. We're going to discover that there is a a reminder of what human leadership is. There is a, a reminder of what godly leadership should be. And a reminder of a leader who's coming that would fit the bill for all. Zechariah is going to paint a picture for us about how the Messiah will be, was, is the leader we always long for. But he begins in a different way. He begins uh, talking about Israel's enemies. We begin in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And and we read, The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and will come to rest on Damascus, for the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord." and on Hamath, too, which borders on it, and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She's heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. Ekron, too, for her hope will Gaza will lose her king, Ashkelon will be deserted, a mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become like, the, like a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites, but I will encamp at my temple to guard against marauding forces Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I'm keeping watch. Wow. God starts out, instead of talking about leadership, he talks about violence and destruction. A time is coming that there was going to be just this overrun violence and destruction. Those listening to 487 B.C., when they they were listening to this back then, they're hearing this and they're going, wait a minute. This is God judging our enemies. Because all these cities listed are cities that started in the northwestern part of the Mediterranean and kind of went all the way down along the coast. And, 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 and God is going to, says, I am, the time is coming when I am going to wipe all of that out. Now the people in 487 B.C. didn't get to see that. But just about 150 years later, it happened just as God said. You see, there was this guy in 332 B.C. His name was Alexander. Alexander the Great. And in that ta- about that time, he came from Greece and came right down the Mediterranean. And he came through and he destroyed and took over all of these cities. And it was interesting, the one city that is kind of highlighted here is Tyre. Tyre was was a, an interesting city. There was old Tyre, which was out in a island, but then they had built a seaport off the island, a new Tyre, and, and so that was right there. When Alexander came through in 332 B.C., everybody in the city, seaport city got in boats, and they went across to the island city and went, na, 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 nah, you can't get us. And so what Alexander did is he destroyed the old city And then he took all of the rubble and he built a causeway out to the island. And he went out and said, here I am. And he destroyed the city. Eventually, Alexander took over everything. In fact, interesting, as he went down the south and and he had victory over the Philistines, he bypassed Jerusalem. Got all done there. He comes back and starts making his way toward Jerusalem. And it's interesting, the Jewish historian Josephus tells this story, which it's probably a little bit of truth and a little bit of fiction, but it makes for a great story. He he records that while Alexander was moving his way back and coming toward Jerusalem, the high priest in Jerusalem had a dream. Now, this is 150 years after Zechariah. The temple's been built. The walls are built. The city is back on track. And he had the dream. And in the dream, God told the high priest, put your priestly garbs on and have the people adorn themselves in white and adorn the city of white and then open the gates and allow Alexander and his armies to come in, open the gates and welcome them in. And so they did. They met Alexander at the gate. They opened the gates. They welcomed him in. And as he came in, the priest found the scroll of Daniel. And he went to the part of Daniel where God talked about the, the leopard. And, and he, he showed Daniel how that he, he showed Alexander how that he fit the prophecy of Daniel. And Josephus says Alexander actually went with the priest and worshipped at the temple and left Jerusalem in peace. And so you look at that, all of that destruction, and then you look at what God says. He says, I will encamp at my temple. And 150 years later, people said, wow, what God said in his word came true. You see, Alexander was a strong leader. But his leadership was Conquest and terror in the hearts of people. You didn't get in his way. And yet God uses first person. I will, I will, I will. God said, I used Alexander as my tool. And you know what? The world benefited from Alexander. He spread the Greek language, Koine Greek. Our New Testament is written in Koine Greek. So there was a common language that the Word of God could spread. He established so much that when the Romans came, it wasn't too hard for them to build highways so that the Word could spread. He did a great deal. But he's not the kind of leader one longs for. Note the contrast. You see, because the leader you and I long for is a person of controlled power. The word is meekness, power under control. The leader we've longed for is one of controlled power. Michelle, could you take care of the delivery guy right there? Is one of controlled power. Look at these very familiar words in Zechariah 9.9. And look at the contrast. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What a contrast. That's the leader that's to come. That's the leader that is going to come, that that came. The leader like Alexander, the conquering leader, would always ride on a proud steed and a war horse. The Messiah would enter in humility and on the colt of a donkey. The proclamation of the Messiah would not be a military victory, but it would be a victory of the heart. Notice that righteousness, that's that inclusive term meaning that he is righteous and he is just and he is a person of great character. He has salvation. It's part of his person, his character. He's gentle. He's literally humble. The leader who is just and has integrity. He's a leader who doesn't just promise deliverance. He is deliverance. He's a leader who's truly humble and who offers true peace and has the ability to bring that peace about. Those refugees from Babylon, who were trying to carve out an existence back in the land of promise had to wonder when they heard Zechariah. Would such a one ever exist? Each of the four New Testament gospels record the event that we call the triumphal entry. Matthew and John each reference Zechariah 99. Matthew and John uh, and, and Matthew states clearly that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that day was the one to whom Zechariah was pointing. And so what the people needed to hear that day as a leader is coming. And what Zerubbabel needed to hear that day is, you need to be like this leader. And what we need to be reminded of today is that when God says he's going to do it, he does it. One day that leader will return. And he will establish his kingdom permanently. And will reign in perfect peace. Zechariah talks about his, he will proclaim peace, verse 10, to the nations. And he says, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. He he talks about that he will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. And what happens with Zechariah and what happens with all the prophets, it's like they're standing on this, this mountain range. And they're standing on the top of a mountain, and they look out, and they can see a mountain peak over there, and they can see another mountain peak over there, and there's another one over there. Now, they don't see all the valleys in between. So Zechariah looks over there, and he sees, here comes your leader, gentle and riding on a donkey. And then he looks over here, and he sees, oh, that leader is going to proclaim peace. He's going to wipe out the enemies. So Zechariah sees the span of prophecy, but he doesn't see the years in between. And so we get this mix of the humble Christ and the defeating Christ, the the winning Christ. But then Zachariah has a second word picture for the people. It starts in chapter 10, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It's the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people like wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, And make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler. Together they will be like warriors in battle. Trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them. They will put the enemy horsemen to shame. I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. I will answer them. The leader you've always longed for is a person of true compassion. The word compassion gets battled, batted around all during political campaign and posturing. Sometimes we hear people call themselves compassionate conservatives and others are say I'm compassionate because of social programs etc. But the word compassion as defined in Webster includes not just sympathy but a sympathy coupled with an urge to help. A truly compassionate person gets involved. In 487 BC leaders typically did not get involved. Leaders were above the people, not part of the people. Leaders were to be honored and revered and served. They were not to get their clothes dirty. People searching for answers then, just as they are today, and there were several sources they could go to. Zechariah points out one source. He starts out, ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. Why does he say that? Because there was a false religion The religion of Baal, Baal was a fertility god, and so you know, let's ask Baal for rain. In fact, some people did it this way. Yes, I know God is there. I know Jehovah is there, and I know we can pray to Jehovah, but you know what? I'm going to have a plan B, just in case. Just in case God doesn't come through, let's make sure we're kind of good with Baal so that we have all of our bases covered. And as Zechariah says, the idols speak deceitfully. The diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, people wander like a sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Have you ever heard that verse before? Write down Matthew nine thirty six. Jesus looked at the people and he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Zacharias says, you have a God and you serve a God. And he is not moved by selfish, deceitful, power-grabbing, manipulative leadership. The contrast is God. He's the creator God. Chapter 10, verse 1, he sends the rain. He's a God who cares, literally pays attention to his flock and raises them up to more than they ever thought they could be. Chapter 10 and verse 3, notice that. I will make my flock. Remember, flock is referring to sheep. And he says, I'm going to make my flock uh, proud and I will raise them up like a proud horse in battle. If I were going to battle, I don't think I would ride a sheep. But God says, I am going to, that, that, that sounds silly, but I, I can do that. I'm going to raise up this people. They will be proud. He's a restoring God. Look at chapter 10 and verse 6. I will strengthen them. I will restore them. Why? Because I have compassion on them. He's a restoring God. He's a God who's involved. Look at chapter 10 and verse 8. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. He's a God who signals, literally whistles for his people. Charlene and I have a friend. He just published a little booklet. Uh, He, for quite a few years, he just finished his Ph.D., At over 70 years old. I love the the energy and the enthusiasm. But he published this little booklet that came from an experience he had while teaching in a seminary in India. When he went to India, he was asked to teach pastoral classes. Now, this man had been a missionary in Iran. He had been a missionary in the Philippines and all. but, But to teach pastoral classes, he felt was kind of out of his realm. But as he thought about it, he prayed about it, God put an image in his mind and he went with it. He actually went there somewhere in India and bought a baby lamb. Bought a lamb and asked permission to bring that lamb with him into the seminary every day. And that's, that idea came because one day he was there when all the young shepherds were going out and they, you know, the kids came out and they were, they're boys, they were horsing around, playing, you know, throwing rocks, kicking a ball. And and the sheep were kind of there and they went down and drink. And then all of a sudden one boy whistled and another boy called and another boy yelled and their sheep went away from them. And he went, wow, isn't that what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So he bought this lamb and he and he carried this lamb with him. He led it along. He talked to it. He, he reasoned, and eventually this lamb became comfortable and began to hear his voice. And long before my friend did that, long before Jesus came along, Zechariah is quoting God saying, I will signal, I will whistle for my sheep. They will know my voice and I will redeem them because I am a God who's involved with my people. The people in 487 B.C. needed to know God was involved in their lives. I need to know God is involved in my life. And We hear about ministry stopping and starting as we did this morning We need to know that God doesn't take a break. He doesn't go out for a coffee and kind of forget about us. He's always involved. And verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord in his name. They will live securely. He leads us securely. You see, God's desire was and is that his people look to him first for leadership. God wanted his people back then in 487 BC to be united together. They needed to be one. When Jesus prays for us in John 17, you know what he prays for? Lord, may they be one just as I am one in you. He prays for that unity. That's what God wants. And he wants that unity to be centered not on just a common cause, but on a relationship with him. He promised a day of victory, but victory comes when we have heartfelt relationship with God. God hasn't changed because God doesn't change. God is still the one who sends the rain. He's still the one who cares for us. He's still the one who makes us more than we ever thought possible. He's still a restoring God who loves you more than you will ever know. He's still calling you and leading you. God wanted his people in 487 B.C. to trust him, the God of compassion, to let him lead them. And he wants that today. That's the work of a compassionate God. When you and I follow our God, when we follow his ways, he makes sure we have all we need one day at a time. Now, chapter 11 of Zechariah gets really confusing. It is a confusing word picture. First, we need to understand, sometimes the old prophets would go out and do literal, I would call it prophetic theater. They would live out their message. And so it seems like that happened here. It seems like here Zechariah went out and actually, like my friend did, actually got some sheep and became a shepherd. And yet what we see in Zechariah 11 is a very simple principle. The leader you've always longed for is a person of unwavering commitment. So he goes out and he lives this word picture. Apparently, chapter 11, verse 7, there was a flock of sheep whose owners cared more about making a quick buck and and getting out of the sheep biz than they did about really the work of tending the sheep and shearing the wool and having a long-term investment. But Chapter 11, verse 7 says they were marked for slaughter. And God uses that flock as an illustration of the nation of Israel. And I can see us in that a little bit. The leaders cared only about themselves. They weren't concerned about the harm their leadership would bring to the people. Zechariah went over and he took over that sheep and he became a good shepherd. He, he actually got rid, in three months, he got rid of the bad shepherds and, and he brought two staffs with him. One he called God's favor and the other God's union. It was the idea that, that he was, these, these were who God was. God was going to show his favor and his union on the people. But something happened. The flock detested him. And he grew weary of him. He says, I'm not going to be your shepherd anymore. You guys can do whatever you want. And he broke the staff called favor. And he broke the staff called union. And the people that had hired him were going to fire him. And he said, okay, well, then pay me. So they paid him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was the price paid for a common slave. And basically, you get the sarcasm here. And so they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me, which is sarcastic, for they didn't value him at all. And so God says, I want you to do something else now. I want you to go play the part of the foolish shepherd. The foolish shepherd is foolish in the sense that he's morally deficient. The foolish shepherd doesn't care for the sheep, doesn't go look for the lost sheep, doesn't take care of the injured sheep. The foolish shepherd cares only for themselves, what they can get from the sheep. And in fact, eventually the foolish shepherd deserts the sheep. God, in essence, brings us full circle. We choose to follow the leader we've longed for, or we settle for substitutes who care more about themselves than those they are leading. And the parallels from Zechariah 11 and John 10 are stark, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If I lay my life down, I take it up again. And he says, I'm not like the hired shepherds who run when there's trouble, I'm the good shepherd. Zechariah only had word pictures. You and I have a name. Jesus. Jesus, the one who rode into Jerusalem, humble and gentle on a donkey. Jesus, who offered eternal deliverance of sin and true peace. Jesus, who said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus, who said, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest for your soul. Jesus, who had compassion. Jesus, the good shepherd. I would submit to you this morning, Jesus is the leader you and I have always longed for. Our hope is not in Washington, D.C. Our hope is not in Springfield, Illinois. Our hope is not at City Hall in whatever community you live in. Our hope is never in a human being. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ. Zechariah pointed in cryptic language to what you and I can look back and see fulfilled. Jesus can give you the peace, the compassion, the commitment that you desire in a leader. Jesus will never fail you. make sure today that he truly is the forgiver and leader of your life. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the privilege this morning of hearing about your work in Japan. Thank you for the ways that we can parallel that reality as we, as we ourselves have faced stops and starts. Dear God... As we look at all of that, may we be mindful of the fact that our answers are not at the ballot box this Tuesday. Our answers are found only in you. May we trust you. May we know that as you've already said, you know the beginning from the end. You set one up in power and you take another down. Lord, may we trust you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.